But, you know, and so when we look at this thing on love, it, it's kind of amazing to me because this chapter on love, we read it, but we read it through very limited lenses of our own language. Our language is so limited when it comes to talking about love because we love everything. Uh, a husband and wife have this love for each other and they love their children. But the love that they have for their children is different than the, they, uh, than the love that they have for each other. You love your church family and I hope that you love pizza differently than you love your church family. But you love pizza too. And so we have this word love that we, we've got in our vocabulary and it's one word to carry a whole bunch of different meanings that we have. And it can become very confusing. And, and it, it's, it's mind-boggling how it works for us. Now, the great thing for us is, is that when the writers wrote the New Testament, the authors of it, all the, the uh, four Gospels and all the letters to the churches and all of that, it was written in the ancient Greek language. Isn't that great? You guys are going like, what? Are you nuts? Now listen, I took Greek when I was in college for three weeks. <laughs> After three weeks, I said, this is not for me. And I, and I discovered this little thing. It's called a Greek-English lexicon. And so what it does is it takes the Greek word, which I can't read, but it breaks it down into English and tells me exactly what it means. It's great for guys like me that don't want to sit in a classroom and try and learn. I mean, I watched the Greek students in my school. They had these little flip cards. They were memorizing alphabet. They were memorizing words. They were doing all this stuff. They bought Greek New Testaments that they were reading. I've talked to a few of my friends since they graduated from school, and I say, so how, how are you doing with your Greek? Are you kidding me? I put it on the shelf after I graduated. And I went like, huh? I was way smarter than you. I put it on the shelf before I graduated. But anyway, so what happens with the, with the Greek language, why it's so important to us is because in the Greek language, there are four major words to describe love. They're each different from one another. And then on top of that, they take those four words and they have 13 different combinations of those words to express their thoughts about love. And so what we have is one word to describe all of what we do with love, they have four words. And those four words, those four Greek words are uh, for love are agape, storge, philio, and eros. And I'm going to walk us through each one of those four words before we get into our passage because it's really important for us to understand and have a clear understanding of what each one of those words means and how it um, shows up in the Bible and applies to Scripture. So the first one we're going to deal with is eros. Eros love is a sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. That's where you have sex, you know. God invented it. God created it. He said it was good. And, and so the Greek word for that is eros. And eros, when it is operating and functioning as God intended for it to, to operate and function between a husband and wife, that intimacy is absolutely the most beautiful expression of togetherness that, that a husband and wife could ever have. But the problem is, is that our nation and our world has defiled Eros and it has become something that has become uh, absolutely like ridiculous. The way that it's infecting our nation, our children, our, uh, our lives. That's where we get Eros is where we get the word erotic from. It's the base word of that. And erotica has played such a, a negative thing in the life of our nation that it is becoming like an epidemic in people's homes. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying kids' minds. It's destroying young men and young women. But that was not the original intent for eros. God had developed and created this eros to be absolutely magnificent between a husband and wife. Now, the really funniest part about the word eros is it doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. For some reason, God didn't put that in there. 
But the Greeks used it to describe what that looked like. So that's our first word, is eros. You guys are going to learn some Greek this morning. The word that, we, that refers to the love of God, and it's one of the kinds of words that we need to, for love, that we need to incorporate into our life, is agape. And agape is the very nature of God. God is love. That's what the Bible tells us. It's agape love that God is. And the big key to understanding agape love is to realize that it can be known through our actions. It's not a feeling. I, I, I really want you to help you understand this, is that, that although there can be feelings attached to it, that is not the primary function of agape love. Agape love is really comes down to the point where it, where it comes out of the will and the desire to step in and to love someone or something. And, and that's what God has done. And because what God has called us to do, and, and I've heard us talk about this a lot, even after I've talked about a message that God has told us that we are to do what to our enemies? Love them. Now, the love that God's calling us to have towards our enemies is this agape love. It's a willful decision to step in and to bring a blessing of benefit to their lives. You have to step in and, and, and do that. That's why God can command us to love our enemies because it's a choice that we make to bless Bless them and bless their lives. It's not to have a good feeling. That's not the love that God's calling us to express to our enemies. He's not saying, go and get all mushy-gushy with them. Go, go fo- throw some phony kind of love on them and hang on them. And they're just sick of you because you're, you're pretending something. And by the way, when people are pretending to love somebody else, man, it's as evident as a, as a big old fat sore thumb that's wrapped up. You can't hide it. And so the love that God, this agape love that God's calling us to, the love that he expresses to to the world is is the one that is where we step into it. And, And to love someone is to obey God on another's behalf, seeking for his or her long term blessing. And the way we know that we love agape God is that we keep his commandments. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Do you get it? It's a willful decision to obey Jesus and follow him that I express my love to God. And, and that's, that's so contrary to what so many people are doing who, who fall under the guise of Christianity. They call themselves Christians, but their lifestyle is contrary to the will of God. And, and Jesus actually made it really clear later on in that chapter 14 where he said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Those two things would be enough for us to hang our hats on and go home right now. God bless you. Have a great day. You're dismissed. Nobody's leaving. But see, this is where it, love is, becomes... The, the distinctive character of a life in Christ in relation to other Christ followers as well and to all of humanity. The loving thing to do may not, may not always be the easy thing to do, but true love is never easy. It takes work. It takes dedication. It takes an act of will. It's not mushy sentimentalism. And there's often a real cost to genuine love. Remember that. I want you to think about that because... For example, for us, if for our nation to love one another, what we are doing is we're taking criminals and we're punishing them. That's love. It's not easy. It's not fun. But that's how we express love as a nation. You express love to your children when you discipline them. I don't know any parent that looks forward to bringing true godly discipline to their children, but they do it out of love for their children. We do it here in the church. Only on a number of occasions in this church, we have brought church discipline to individuals who have stepped outside and are willfully, willfully stepping into sinful behavior. And we bring church discipline to them, not to beat them up, not to make them feel bad, but because we love them. And I'm going to tell you something that every time that we've done it, it's been one of the most difficult things that I've had to do as a pastor. 
but yet the end result bears fruit. And that's what love looks like. That's what this agape love looks like that God's calling us to. The third word for love in the Greek that we're going to examine is filial, which means to have a special interest in someone or something, frequently focused on on someone closely in association with us. We have affection for them. We really like them. We, We consider them to be a deep friend. And that's where we get that word Philadelphia. The city of what? That's exactly what it is. It's that deep love and affection that you have for one another. And, and it, it really shouldn't necessarily be always translated filio. I think the, the New Testament would be better translated if they didn't use the word love for filio, but they used a strong liking instead. But, you know, that's just me, and I don't know enough ancient languages to translate the Bible, so I'll just leave it the way it is. Um, But we use that word in conjunction with other things too because I have a strong feeling for something that I really like and I say I love it. Like, you know, ice cream. Because I really do love ice cream. It's a a strong attachment to ice cream, as you can tell. And then there is, we, I love my car. And honestly, I love your hair. (laughs) You, well, most of you, have really beautiful hair. Some of you are in the same boat I am, and you've got like a landing strip for mosquitoes. But the, the, the word filio Im, Im, implies a strong emotional connection, a, a deep friendship. And you can agape the love of God. You can agape that to your enemies, but you cannot filio your enemies. They do not want it and you don't necessarily want to get into it because you don't know what the end result is. That's why God calls us to agape our enemies but filial one another in the body of Christ. It's that strong like and attachment that we have for each other. And the difference between agape and filial becomes really clear in John chapter 21. And, and I didn't put it on the screen but let me just kind of give you the background on all of this. In, John, in, the, in John's gospel, um, after Jesus, you know, when Jesus went down to the garden, he was hauled down to the garden to be crucified and all the rest of that. And he was going to go through this hideous torture. And he was going to, you know, go through probably the worst thing anybody could ever go through. And Peter followed at a distance. And he came into the courtyard. And there were three times when Peter was identified with Jesus that Peter denied knowing Jesus. And so in John chapter 21, what we have is when Jesus showed up to uh, the Sea of Galilee where Peter and uh, John and some of the other disciples had been fishing and and they see Jesus on the shoreline and Jesus identifies himself and Peter is so excited to see Jesus, he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore and he comes to Jesus and then Jesus and Peter have this conversation. And the conversation goes something like this. I'm going to give it to you first kind of the way we read it in the Bible, then I'm going to give it to you the way that the Greek wrote it, okay, that was written in Greek. So Jesus says to Simon, do you love me more than these fish? And Simon says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to Simon again, do you love me? And Peter replies, you know that I love you. Jesus said back to Simon, do you love me? And Peter was grieved this time. He said, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, let me help you to understand that the way it's written in Greek because we're reading it with one word and understanding it with one word. But here's the way that it really is translated or should be translated out of the Greek. Jesus said to Simon, do you agape, the love of God, love me, where you're going to make a sacrifice for my name? Do you agape love me more than these fish? Sacrificial love. And then Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I filio brotherly love, love you. Jesus comes back and says, no, Simon, do you agape love me? I want to know if you're willing to go and make a sacrifice for me. Do you love me that much to make a sacrifice in your life? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I filio love you as my brother. And it comes back again. Jesus steps down to Peter's level and says, do you filio me? 
Peter Grief said, Lord, you know I feel ill here. It makes total, it's a total different scenario when you understand how love is written in that passage. Because we read it with one thought in mind as we go through it. And so what the the authors of the book are telling us is that in this love conversation, that Jesus is using agape and Peter is using filio. And Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him with the love of God, a love that will require sacrifice. After all, Jesus had just gone through the most horrific sacrifice on planet Earth because he loved Peter, and he loved us. He gave his life. He sacrificed his love. That was agape love for us. That's what Jesus did. And he wanted to know whether Peter was going to be able to go and love him enough to make a sacrifice of his life for Jesus. What Peter was wanting is because burning in his mind was still those those three times back in the courtyard where he had denied Jesus. He not just denied him, but he denied the friendship, the filio. And so Peter was wondering, where do I stand with you, Jesus? I want to know. Are we, I want you to know that I filio. I love you like my own brother. I have this deep affection for you. And, and, and he's, he's asking Jesus, do you have that for me? That was the cry of his heart. He wanted to know, Jesus, can we, are we still good? Are we still friends? Are we filio? Are we going to have this deep connection with one another. And Jesus says yes. And the reason why Jesus said yes is because he knew something that Peter didn't know at that moment. Is that that filial love that he had for Peter and Peter had for him, Peter was also going to have to have with the rest of the disciples. Because soon Jesus would be ascending into heaven and leaving all the work that had to be done on earth that Jesus was commanding them to do. But there had to be a filial love among the disciples in order for them to complete the task that Jesus was giving to them. It had to be, it had to be undergirded with agape love and then it had to be supported with filial love. And that's why it's so important for us to understand the differences in these words. The fourth Greek word that we need to understand is storge. Now, storge is a love and affection that naturally occurs between parents and children. Because a parent loves their child differently than they love a friend. There's a different love and affection for their children. That, that same storge love also is, is found amongst siblings. Now, not all siblings. Some siblings just want to shoot each other. You know, and that's not really love at all. But what we have here is we have this sorge love that has this this family tie to it. And the best expression of sorge love is found in a marriage between a husband and wife, a really good marriage. Now, here's, here's what we have. We have agape, we have filio, we have sorge, we have eros. Those four loves culminate and come together in only one place. There's no other place that you will ever find all four of these loves colliding to make something absolutely marvelous. It's actually something that's very sacred in in and of its nature. And that thing where it collides together is in a marriage. Because you have eros, that's the sexual love between a husband and wife. You have agape love, that's that sacrificial love that you have for one another that God gave to you. You have sorge love, this connection of family that you have developed over years. And then you have philios love, that there's as much deeper meaning love that you have together. And as soon as you remove one of those four loves out of the marriage context, you have marital problems. Your marriage is going to be in trouble. You're going to find out that, and and usually the first one to leave out of that scenario is agape love. The love that we express because we're going to sacrifice our lives for the good of the person that I've stepped into this union with Christ. I mean, you know, a, a godly marriage has three people involved in it. It has the husband, the wife, and Jesus. 
and Jesus is at the, at the top, and then there's a line that comes off to the side. And as the husband and wife grow more in love with Jesus, agape, they grow more in love, agape, in love with each other. They grow more filial. They grow more sorge. They grow more eros, loving each other as they love Jesus, agape. But as soon as you remove one aspect of those four parts of love in a marriage, things start to go south. So if you're married and you're having problems, and I'm not saying that it has to be really bad problems. I'm just saying once in a while you run into a bump and you're going like, what is wrong with this person? Don't they know who I am? Don't they realize what they've married? That's when you need to stop and go like, all right, which love am I neglecting to produce in my marriage? It's probably agape. Not always. But it's probably agape, the self-sacrifice love that you're supposed to have for your spouse. All right, so you got that? Agape, filial, Sorge and Eros. There will be a test on this. You will not be able to leave church until you pass the test or triple tithe. You know, one of the best places where we see this um, whole thing coming together in the, the Sorge love, and I just want to throw this in kind of as a side note, it's found in Romans chapter 12. And, and what I've done is I've taken that verse and I've expanded it to the intent and the meaning of it. So if you look it up in your Bible, you're going to go like, well, that's not what mine said. It'll be close. Yeah, nah, I don't think so. So it'll be close, but I want you to hear it. It's a, it should be on the slide too. As to your brotherly love, let there be deep friendship and family affection toward one another. See, that's, that's the love that we're called to amongst each other, sorge. So in the church, we, we really should be operating in three dimensions. We should be operating with agape and filial and sorge. We can develop sorge love. I have a lot of sisters in this church. I have one biological sister, but I have a lot of sisters in this church. And I love them. Like I love my sister. Maybe more. Because they've never beat me up. <laughs> so here's, here's where we're going to go. Because now we're going to go and we're talking about this thing called love. It's an act of the love that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an act of self-sacrifice. It is humility. It is meeting the needs and doing what God wants us to do. There is no self-seeking, pride, selfishness, self-glory, or vanity in the love that is described in chapter 13. And when it comes now to Paul talking to the Corinthians about it, here's the really bizarre thing if you think about it as we've been studying 1 Corinthians for low these 33 weeks. It's been a long haul so far. The Corinthians did not have any doctrinal issues. Paul does not talk about doctrine to them until he gets to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where then he starts to talk about the doctrine of the resurrection. But up till this point, the Corinthians have absolutely nailed the doctrine that they're supposed to have. They were brilliant thinkers. They understood it. They could articulate it. But their problem was they didn't have love. They did not have this agape love one for another. And so that's where they end up getting into problems. They didn't know, know what it was looking at. And so as they, even as they were operating in their gifts, because remember, we're coming out of chapter 12 where Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts that God's given to us and how we operate in those spiritual gifts for the benefit of the, the body of Christ and what that looks like and how those gifts are to be manifested amongst one another. And so then he steps into this whole thing on love, but it's what he's talking about is that you, your gifts operate out of this agape love. And that's what he's calling us to because that was the problem that the church had. 
They weren't operating out of love for each other. They were operating out of self-interest, self-glorification. It was all about themselves. And so let's take a look and and we're going to start with verse 1. I might have to get on my high horse here and go speak really fast. So if you don't catch it the first time, you can listen to it online. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I I want you to understand this as we go. We look at these, these first three verses in this chapter is what Paul's doing is he's going to take his thoughts to the extreme examples, okay? So he, he's, he's out there on the edges, and so what he's doing is I'm on the edges out here like this, and so it covers everything from edge to edge and everything in between. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, he's, the, the thing he's talking about is if you, could, if you could have angel talk, if you could speak the language of angels, that's what he's saying here, actual Angel language. I've never heard it before. I've never spoken it before. I, I, I don't know if I know anybody that can. And so that's, you know, that's kind of where he's out there. But he's saying that if you're able to speak that way, or notice that he says, or the tongues of men, if you're able to speak and con- convince people and capture their minds using your native language and capture their hearts and turn their wills to certain behavior, there's a lot of tremendous power in being able to use your words and articulate those thoughts in such a way that it moves people. But what he's saying is you can do that all you want to, but without love, it just doesn't matter. He's, he's saying to be able to play an audience like a master plays a piano, to begin to move them to inspiration or to bring them to a place of calm or to arouse them into doing great things or convincing them that where they're at is where they should be and they need to go to a higher level or to persuade or to convict people. It's an art that some people have mastered. But if they don't have love, it doesn't matter. And in the case of the Corinthians, they had turned their gift of languages into fleshly ecstasy. It was a fully pagan activity. And Paul says, what you're doing isn't going to matter one little bit. Not now and not for eternity. Because you're not building it and using it on the premise of love. You've just wasted what God has given to you. Now, I did a little bit of reading and a little bit of research to find out what what was going on at Paul's time with the church in regards to pagan worship. Because, you know, it, it right because all these people in the church have come out of pagan worship. All kinds of gods set up in the city of Corinth for them to go and worship. And it has, it, it's still true today in a lot of religions outside of the worship outside the context of the Bible. They use a lot of symbols and gongs and clanging noise and trumpets. False religion. Idol worship, idolatry, all focused around these clanging symbols and stuff, and it's just making a bunch of noise to get the God's attention so that they're going to be heard in what they're doing. And what does it do? Because their idols are made out of what? Wood, stone, all kinds of human things or manufactured stuff. It's not, I mean, they've carved it and said, this is my God, and now they make all this noise to this God who can't hear them. And he can't do anything. And so all the noise that they make is useless. And what that's what Paul is saying. When you use your languages or if you can use your, your gift of language, whatever that gift looks like, you use that gift of language and it's not brought through agape love, sacrificial love. All it becomes is like a clanging cymbal or a gong or trumpets in some faraway um, um, false god temple. I mean, the, the picture that comes to my mind is when I was in Thailand. You would hear the symbols and the clangings in all the Buddhist temples all around the town all the time because they're trying to get the attention of their God. And that's what Paul is saying, is you, you become just like those people because you have neglected to step into agape love to administer this gift of language that God has given to you. And, and let me just carry this to the logical end. The best speech on earth from the most gifted orator is nothing but a noisy racket if it's delivered without love. And we might minister in our spiritual gifts in the flesh apart from the spirit. 
and apart from the love that the Spirit generates. But if we do, it means absolutely nothing to anyone, including God. Unless gifts are ministered out of the power of the Spirit, through the fruit of the Spirit, in the energy of the Spirit, in accordance with the Word of God written by the Spirit, it's just a pagan racket, banging gong, clanging cymbal, and blurring trumpet. It's just paganism within the four walls of the church. And that's Paul's call to us. He's saying, don't be like what you used to be like. God has brought you out of darkness into light. So operate out of love. And that means that we walk in the Spirit. Now, to walk in the Spirit means that you turn your life to His control. You confess your sins. You allow the Spirit of God to govern in your thought patterns. As the Spirit of God controls you, He produces fruit. Remember, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And love will only come in the way of of the Spirit working through us as we allow Him to and we choose to. Work in agape love. And that was the problem of the Corinthian church. They were not walking in the spirit. They were walking in the flesh. Everything that they did, particularly in in the, the gift of languages, they were looking to get praise from other people. They were looking to get honor and respect. And all the rest of that by using the gift that God had given to them for their own selfish needs. That's why the church was in such deep kimchi. It was deep trouble for them. And they didn't even know it. Because all all they could do was focus on themselves. Let's move on to verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Prophecy without love is nothing. Now, let me, I'm going to walk you kind of through this a little bit because there's, there's this progression that Paul's making here. He's talking about the gift of languages, first of all. And, and in that, he's talking about being able to speak to angels or being able to speak eloquently to other people. And then he goes to the gift of prophecy, which is, by the way, when you get into chapter 14, the ultimate gift that God could give. That's what Paul says in chapter 14. And the reason why it's the most important gift is because it's the gift of proclamation of God's word. It's the gift of proclaiming the greatness of God. And I believe that prophecy has two aspects. The aspect of revelation in the Bible. When a prophet spoke the revelation of God, that is prophecy. And it is also reiteration when he re-spoke the revelation of God. And, and I want you to know that I speak to you revelation of God every Sunday, but I re-speak it. It's not a new revelation. And if I ever get up and say, I've got a new revelation from God, You all should get up out of your chairs and walk out of the back door and don't come back until somebody has brought church discipline to my life. Because there's not going to be another new revelation. Everything that God wants us to know, He's already revealed in His Word. And so when I stand up or John stands up or whoever stands up to preach on a Sunday morning, they are fulfilling the meaning of the word prophecy, to speak to someone. And in this, in in biblical context, It is to speak to someone about the wonders and mysteries of God. So that's what he's saying is is that the the Corinthian church, they were using using the gift of of public proclamation um, out of the context from which God had intended the gift to be used. It's one of those things when people have that gift to be able to publicly proclaim the wonders of God, they stand up and with eloquence and dramatic speech, they preach the truth of God. And it's the power to declare the things of God, the power to interpret life, the power to bring the word of heaven to earth and to bear on people's lives so that there's transformation. It's the power to draw eternity into time. It's the gift of proclamation. But without love, it doesn't matter. It amounts to nothing. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul said these little things, and it's stuck in my mind since I I first read it as a little kid. And it goes like this. 
but speaking the truth in what? Love. But speaking the truth in love. There's a balance. And so when, when the word of proclamation comes out as prophecy, it needs to be in balance with love. If it's not, it's going to do something that, it, that God never um, intended for it to do. Third, let's, let's walk through this. Languages without love is nothing. Prophecy without love is nothing. And now it says knowledge without love is nothing. This is a uh, culminating thing. Paul started out and he connected with, he was, his, you know, connected speech with languages. And then he got more into prophecy. And now he even goes further and assumes all knowledge. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and don't have love, I am nothing. What does it mean to understand mysteries? Maybe a better question is, what is a mystery? Right? Now, I, I, want, to, I want to help you understand this. Is that when the word mystery is used in the Bible, and it's used 30 times in the Bible, it is never used casually. It is always used technically. And there's a technical meaning to it. And, and that technical meaning is that a mystery is a divine truth, something that has been hidden in ages past and is now revealed. And you can go through the whole New Testament and find all the mysteries. The mystery of godliness, God in human flesh, the mystery of Christ in us, the mysteries of Jews and Gentiles coming together under the headship of Jesus, the mystery of becoming a new creature in Christ, the mystery of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are sacred secrets of God revealed to us from old into the New Testament so that we have a greater understanding of God's secrets. God has certain redemptive truths which he revealed to us. And there are others that he has not revealed to us that we won't know until we get to heaven and only maybe then will we know them. But let's assume that you knew every single secret in God's mind, all the mysteries, all redemptive truth, that you could not only know redemptive fact, but you could perfectly correlate every redemptive truth. That if you knew every single fact about God and His ultimate purpose for time and eternity, and you could connect every fact, if you had all of that, and additionally, if you had all knowledge, and knowledge is the facts that can be ascertained by investigation, not only did you know everything in the the universe, you knew all the mysteries and the secrets about God, every single fact that you could know, every bit of it, you knew that. But if you didn't have love, guess what that is? Nothing. Out of one to ten, it's still a zero. You don't even get to a two with having all that great knowledge. Because what God is saying is, I'm giving you these gifts for the betterment of other people. So you use it sacrificially to speak into people's lives so that they are blessed beyond measure. And you can only do that if you're doing it through agape love. Paul kind of said that earlier on in this book in chapter 8 when he said that, that knowledge builds pride. He actually put it this way. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if you have a choice of getting great knowledge or getting a, a full measure of love, what is it that you should choose? Right. Absolutely. Love, 100%. Matter of fact, I think that we should all enroll uh, in Harvard and get a PhD in love. I don't think they have a class for it because they wouldn't know how to teach it. But they definitely could give you knowledge. You know, it's, it's this knowledge that God... He, he doesn't want us to be idiots, by the way. He does want us to know things. He wants us to study the Word. He wants us to have an apprehension and understanding of what God is trying to tell us through His Word. But He... So he doesn't want us all walking around going like, you know, somebody asks you a question and, and, and your answer is, shucks, I don't know, Jesus. Because there's a whole lot more to answer than just Jesus. People have real questions and we need to know what the Bible says. But if we're not exploring and if we're not uh, bringing that knowledge to bear into people's lives through love because we want to sacrifice what we have to help them understand better, then it's not worth anything. And what you tell them isn't going to make a one 
but a difference in their lives. In Philippians 1.9, Paul said this, And it is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Do you see it? You can't separate those two. You, keep, you have to keep them in perfect balance. And I think that in Wind River Community Church, we could err on either side. We could say we're just going to love people no matter what and, and ignore the knowledge that God's given to us, which then we're just going to be a bunch of happy people that just don't know any better and we're going to make a mess of things. Or we're going to go to the other extreme and we're going to say you need to sit down and it becomes a regiment in studying the Word of God so that, that you know a whole bunch of stuff but you have no idea how to dispense that knowledge and love to other people and it doesn't make a difference in their lives. So God's calling us to be in balance. Now remember, Paul says, not only languages, prophecies, mysteries, and knowledge, you have those without love, it's nothing. But the fourth thing he says, though I have faith so that I could remove mountains and not have love, I am nothing. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, aren't we all supposed to have faith? Absolutely. You should all have, I, I would imagine that, well, Actually, you couldn't get to church this morning without faith. You had faith that when you stuck the key into your car and you turned the ignition that the motor was going to start, you put it in gear, that the transmission would kick into gear, you'd be able to drive to church and get here on time. On time. Did I say that? On time? All right. So it took, it took a certain amount of faith for you to get here. The reason that you came here is because you put your faith in Christ. You, you came to a saving faith in Christ. You were saved from unbelief. Being saved from your sins was a byproduct. But you were saved from unbelief into believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for your sins. That's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 is all about. If you believe, you will be saved. Okay, so you have that faith. But the faith that Paul is talking about here is a different faith. It's a gift. It's the gift of faith. And, and so the gift of faith that he's talking about here is that, that there are people who have the ability to step into faith where the rest of us are going like, I don't think that's going to work. I just don't see how that's going to happen. And these people who have the gift of faith, they get on their knees and they start to pray and they start to pray and they start to pray and the rest of us are going like, it just ain't going to happen. It's just not going to work out. It's just not going to make any... And they step up and they go, no, we got to trust God. God's, God's in the middle of this. God's still on his throne. He is sovereign. And I believe that God is going to work this thing out for our good. We just need to keep praying and trusting God until he produces what we're asking him to, to produce for us. And the next thing you know, out of somebody's faith who has the gift of faith and continually encouraging us who don't have the gift of faith to continue on and press on with them, guess what? What happens? What do you think happens when that, when that person exercises their gift of faith and love? You have a church building. Did you know that? Did you know we had people with the, the, the gift of faith that stepped into this whole process of us getting into this building that we get to have as our own? That's what the gift of faith looks like. And it can move mountains. Now, God really doesn't want you to move a mountain. It causes a lot of problems other places. You take the mountain and you move it into Riverton. That's not a good deal. Okay? You, you got to keep the mountain where it is. But it's the idea of, of, if you think of it metaphorically speaking, what are the mountains in your life? Finances. Christmas a big mountain for a lot of people because Christmas is not joy to the world for a lot of people. Christmas is bah humbug. Who wants Christmas? It just brings a lot of pain into my life. But God's saying with faith, that mountain can be moved. And people can move that mountain in your life, help you with that, those people that have faith. But the problem with it is, is what Paul is saying is, is that you might have that kind of faith, but if you're not expressing it through love, it doesn't do anything. guys have the big point yet, the big idea? Okay, so I'm just going to quickly move into verse 3. It says, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. Basically, what this is talking about is both benevolence and martyrdom. 
And, and in benevolence, it, it's like if Bill Gates were to take all of his money, every red cent that he has, and he were to go and visit every church and orphanage, every homeless shelter, every place where poor people are showing up, and he would walk into that place and he would say, how much do you need? $300,000, which is like 30 cents to us for Bill Gates. $300,000, here you go, here's, here's $300,000. He goes to the next place. And what he is doing is he's just dispensing his wealth to the poor uh, one little portion at a time so that he can cover as many of the people as he can. We would all look at him, we'd go like, wow, that's great. But Paul says if he dispenses his wealth out to the poor, even like that, even in a benevolent thing, even if he's making a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice in love. It doesn't accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. It's all self-glorification. Love is self-sacrifice. But self-sacrifice isn't necessarily love. Last one is martyrdom. Giving your body to be burned. Not really on my bucket list. And, and I'm, okay. I don't know why Paul threw that in there. Actually, a lot of the scholars that I read, they were going like, okay, um... Maybe he was thinking, maybe the Holy Spirit gave him insight into something that was going to happen to the Christians, you know, in a short few years where the Roman Empire would turn against them and they would start martyring Christians in the arena and all the rest of that. But the reason you go to the arena is because of your faith. But if you don't do it out of love for God, then it's, he's just basically saying, even giving your life away in martyrdom, Zero. Nothing. Doesn't amount to anything. So it's kind of a... The idea here is if you get it, if you really follow through with it, the sum of all of it is it doesn't matter what gifts you have. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you believe. You could be a celebrated Christ follower, a theologian, a missionary, a pastor, a teacher an author, a scholar. You could be wealthy and, and a philanthropist, giving away millions of dollars. You could give your life in place of someone else. But if you don't have the agape love of God as the driving force in your life, you do it for nothing, it's meaningless, and it accomplishes zero. It doesn't help the church. It doesn't bring people to Christ. And all you've done is wasted what God has given to you. So basically, what Paul's telling us this morning is, what is your motivation for what you do in all of life? What motivates you? Let me bring up our reflective questions real quick. Because I, I imagine that as we talk about agape love and making it sacrificial love and that we're supposed to love our enemies, <laughs> is there someone that God brought to your mind that you've not been showing agape love to? How can you demonstrate love to that person, person in such a way that it is received as being genuine, not a fake? They'll sniff out a fake in a heartbeat. Number two, biblically, love is not an emotion. It is an act, an act of self-sacrifices. What are some specific ways that you can show love to those in your family and to Christ followers here as we meet on a Sunday or in a small group that you attend? Then ask God to give you opportunities to express that love. Number three, what do you need to do to add filial, brotherly love, to agape love, to strengthen it in your life so that you are connecting deeper with others around the cross of Christ.
Aren't you glad God loves you? He made a choice to love you. He made that choice of loving you by having you, by creating you. The psalmist said you were knit together in your mother's womb. God knew you long ago, before anybody else knew you, before your parents gave you a name, before you had a little personality. God absolutely loved you. Now, here's the greatest news in all of that, is that God doesn't need you. I want you to hear me on this. God does not need you. Now, that may be a shock to some of you. You think you're the voice of reason to God? (laughs) You're not. God doesn't need you. But here's the important part, the second part of that that's so important. God wants you. God wants you. And he loves you. And he's dispensed this agape love into your life through the Holy Spirit. And what he's asking you to do now is to step into the agape love. Start with agape love. Start by making a willful choice to sacrifice for the benefit of the body of Christ. And then work at adding filio. And then work at adding sterigo to it. Amen? Our Father, we are just so thankful today that regardless of what we look like or how we act or how we behave, regardless of what we do, your word is clear to us. It's strong and straightforward. It's beneficial. We know that this love that you've given to us is the ultimate blessing you have for us. And now you've asked us to take this love and to bless others with it. And you've promised us that as we step in and we love you, agape, that we can then love others, agape, and filial. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen our hearts so that we would know the love of Christ and be able to share it with those who are around us and touch lives of people who have never experienced it and that our church would grow deeper in two ways, that our our roots would go deep in you, Jesus, and our branches would reach out and touch other people. And so we ask for more ability to love you the way you've called us to, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Mm -hmm.